Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This is message number 13 of the series From the Book of James, with speaker Pastor Brian Robertson, entitled Real Faith Gets to See God Work, from James 5, 13 through 20. You can find the sermon outline for this message at enewlife.com. Well, I want to start this morning by telling you a story about my childhood. It all started in 1846. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Last night did not laugh, and that was offensive. <laughs> People are like, okay, yeah, 1846, that's good. I'm sure you were. I'm sure you were there. Well, it's not really about my childhood, but in May of 1846... 187 men, women, and children left Missouri in a wagon train. They were headed to California. There was nothing exceptional about the group, really nothing exceptional about the trip, except they decided to take a shortcut. I know, ladies, you're thinking my husband's done that too, but this went really bad. Okay. The Hastings Cutoff, as it's known now, was indeed a shorter route to their destination, but it had only been tried on horseback. Nobody had ever tried to get wagons through this journey. Well, this group, now known as the Donner Party, wouldn't complete their journey. This group is famous because of allegations of cannibalism that occurred within the group while they waited rescue. You see, the survivors were high in the Sierra Madre for three months without food. Now, we find the thought of cannibalism repugnant and disgusting. We like to believe that no matter what, we would never do such a thing. But it would be more accurate to say, I have not been that hungry yet, than to say, I would never eat that. Now, you're wondering where in the world I am going with this. Well, I'm trying to get you ready for three days of prayer and fasting. No, I'm not. <laughs> I just realized that halfway through, that we're getting ready to go into three days of prayer and fasting. Don't go on a wagon train trip, I'm just saying. Okay. Here's where I'm going. We have been on a journey for 13 weeks now. In the New Testament book of James, it's a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus to the church, and many of you have been coming each weekend ready to take in the teaching of the Word, ready to be challenged to live out real faith. And from the feedback that we've been getting God has done some amazing things through your obedience to this teaching. And I believe this is because of the way that you've come ready to learn, ready to know Jesus more deeply. So I think it's important that we think of two important things whenever we come into a celebration each week. Whenever we're sitting under teaching, whether it's in celebration or in a class or in a small group, we come with expectation and desperation. Those should be two words that define us as Christ followers. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus commends those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Think Donner Party hungry, desperate, without pride, with one goal and one goal only, to be fed the truth of God's Word, to eat readily at whatever God lays on the table, to accept whatever condition or correction or assignment he throws at us without hesitation. When we come this way to the truth, according to Jesus, we leave filled 
and content. That's the way we ought to be coming each time we come under the teaching of the Word. And so we've been doing that now. This will be our 13th week. And so we come to the final section of this letter. And I hope this morning that you've come with expectation and desperation and that you're hungry for God's work in you. Let's pray together. Father, we do. I pray that we come this morning hungry and desperate for your word. That we come with the expectation that you're going to speak to us and challenge us and change us. May that be the way that we listen to your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in your worship folder is an outline for this last few verses of the book of James. We're going to be starting in verse 13, going through the very end of the book, verse 20 of chapter 5. But let's do this first. Let's do a quick review of the book of James. And this is on your outline there. What have we learned? What have we learned in these last 12 weeks? You'll be surprised. I hope that you can shake your head and say, okay, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. I remember what God said to me in that moment and from that passage. We've learned to respond rightly to trials. We've learned to respond rightly to temptation. We've been taught to not just hear, but obey the Word of God. We've been challenged to care for the marginalized and commit to staying pure. We've been challenged to treat others equally, to live a life of compassion and obedience, to reign in our speech. We've been told to make wise life choices and to choose God's friendship over the world's, to refuse to tear down others, to trust God's sovereignty over the future, to fight against injustice. And then last week, we studied how to patiently remain steadfast in the midst of mistreatment. That's where we've been these last 12 weeks. See, in James, we have been discovering what real faith looks like, how it is lived out, how the challenging words of Scripture translate into practical, daily Christianity. Think about this. Those who do not follow Christ often say that the church is full of hypocrites, right? Anybody ever heard that? Church is full of hypocrites, and that judgment keeps them from listening to the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his plan to redeem fallen humanity. They refuse to listen to that. And I think probably rightfully so because of what they see in us often. But I think God is even more concerned about hypocrisy than they are. See, Jesus gave his life so we might be examples to others of the truth of his plan of the gospel. Certainly, he would have us live out what we say we believe, don't you think? Just seems to follow. If we don't, the consequences are a matter of life and death. See, there will be people inside the church who are not truly believers who just give lip service to him. That's its life and death to them. And to those outside the church who may never come home to the Father because you and I get in the way rather than being their 911 God rescue squad which is what we're to be. 
God's very concerned about hypocrisy, about how our lives say we believe one thing. Yes, we, be- we believe the Bible, but we don't live it out. Or we say we have faith, but that faith isn't really real. In the book of James, we've seen, test, we've seen faith tested by the problems of life, by unholy temptations, by disobedience to the Word of God. The man who says he has faith has been challenged to exhibit it by avoiding partiality or snobbishness, or to prove it even, to try to prove it through a life of good works. He's learning to yield his tongue to the Lordship of Christ. This man is seeing that true faith is accompanied by true wisdom. The life of envy and strife is exchanged, James says, for that of practical godliness. We've seen faith avoids feuds and struggles and jealousies that spring from covetousness and worldly ambition. It avoids a harsh, critical spirit. It avoids the self-confidence which leaves God out of life's plans. Faith stands trial in the book of James by the way it earns and spends its money. In spite of oppression, it manifests fortitude and endurance in view of Christ's return. Real faith has speech that is uniformly honest, needing no oaths to attest it. Faith goes to God in all the changing moods of life, in sickness, It looks for spiritual causes, we'll see today. By confession to God and to those who have been wronged, it removes then these possible causes. Finally, faith goes out in love and compassion to those who have wandered from God. That's where James has been trying to get us. And so now James comes in for a landing in these verses. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Let me read that for us. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, Remember this, that whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, this morning what I want to do is talk to us about the fact that real faith gets to see God work. See, all these things we've learned come down to this. Real faith gets to see God work. This isn't just in a vacuum. It isn't something James saying, hey, try to have this kind of a lifestyle. Try to get these areas of your life in place. There is a purpose, and it comes down to this, that we get to see God work. Anybody want to see, see God work? I think we do. I think many of us long to see God work, work in the miraculous, work in healing, work in people's lives, to see God do what only God can do. So first, we get to see God work through our prayers. 
He works through our prayers. He works through our prayers in our trouble, verse 13. If any of you, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. The word here is more clearly those who suffer, those who are suffering. It refers to those who are going through unpleasant experiences that come from outside, either from maybe hardships experienced in spreading the gospel or persecution of some kind from evil people. James has referred to these kind of people earlier in chapter 5, those who are under trials and tests. Those suffering in this way should do what? Pray. Not necessarily for deliverance, but the ability to endure patiently. See what's going on? If you're struggling, if you are suffering, if you are taking on trials and tests from the outside that are being, you're being pummeled by, pray. We get to see God work. He says, pray if you're in this situation. What do we tend to do? We tend to try to do it on our own, don't we? Let me figure out what to do. Let me come up with a plan to get out of this mess. Or let me, maybe back off. If it's because we're being persecuted, let me back off a little bit, not say these kind of, this kind of thing. Oh, it must be offensive. It must be not politically correct to do that. So I'm going to back off a little bit. No, he says pray. Then we get to see God work through our prayers in our joy. Okay, here's where we all want to be, right? I like that part better. Those who are having a good life should pray too, but their prayers should be songs of praise, James says. Now, this is an interesting little phrase. Is, if, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Well, given the intensity and the heaviness of the previous section, this seems really out of place, doesn't it? James has been, it's been this heavy book, right? Oh my gosh, we leave each week going, oh, I have got to get this right. Now James says, hey, anybody happy? Well, not now, James. Is anybody happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now, I can't say exactly what James' intention is here, but as a pastor, it feels to me he's doing what any good pastor would do if a lot of hard things are going on. He's saying, if you're happy, if life is going well for you, remind us all to sing. Just just start singing. Remind us to, to praise God. If you're not struggling right now, make sure that those around you remember the faithfulness of the Lord. Remind them that God is good. Remind them that God is sovereign, that He's out for His glory and our good. Remind them that He is worthy of our worship and our praise. Remind them of His love. Help them stay focused on the truth. Now, this singing, for this to work the way that I think James is saying, isn't singing in the shower, okay? That's not getting anybody. This is right there where everyone can hear. This morning, Alan, during the Brothers Keeper prayer time, said, maybe you have a praise this morning. And Don't we tend to do this? Well, hmm. no, wait a minute. Maybe the person next to you needs to be reminded that God is good, that God is still at work, that he is doing amazing things, that he's working miraculously in lives. Because maybe they're having a bummer of a week. Is any of you happy? Let him sing songs of praise to encourage the body. We must be doing what Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Where do we get stuck? We weep with those who weep. No, there's a, there's a part before that. We kind of get the weep with those who weep part, but do we rejoice with those who rejoice? So Ohio State fans, are you willing to rejoice? No, that's going way too far. 
As we'll see in the verses that follow, this should take place in community. Both these things should take place in community, in our trouble and in our joy. In our trouble, we should pray. In our joy, we should rejoice. It should take place in community. It should be taking place in our small groups, in our Brothers Keeper prayer time, our special days of prayer and fasting. It should be taking place in our dinners with friends, our times of discipleship and mentoring, even our group texts where we let others in on the needs that we have and the answers that God is providing. This should be happening. They should all involve the power of praying together whether it's in trouble or in joy. You see, if we do not, if we hold it all in ourselves, then we are missing out on one of the most wonderful pieces of the Christian life, each other. In our trouble, pray. In our joy, praise, and let's do it together. Let's be a church. Let's be people who rejoice with those who rejoice as well as weep with those who weep. We get to see God work through our prayers in our sickness, verses 14 and 15. It's important to note that what James is talking about here, where he says, okay, if you're sick, call on the elders, this passage here, probably wasn't a new concept to the readers, and it really shouldn't be a new concept to us. James simply assumes this would be a natural inclination for Christians to do. If you are sick, ask people to pray. The one who is sick, James says, is to call on the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, to come on behalf of the entire congregation and anoint him with oil. Now, this oil could be medicinal of some sort, but it is best seen, I believe, as a symbol representing the healing power of the Holy Spirit to come upon the sick person. See, it could be as simple as this. So that the person being prayed for That those prayers are not only heard, but there's a physical feeling in those moments of prayer. Seems to also indicate that this may be a person who is so ill that they have to have the elders come to them. It says, call on the elders of the church to pray for them. Then there's the phrase, they are to pray in the name of the Lord. Anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. It's very important. It's a statement that it is God not the oil that heals. It says the prayer is to be offered in faith, or in some translations it says this is the prayer of faith. This is a prayer prayed in confidence that God is a God who can and does heal. It also is not the faith that the person being prayed for has, but that of those praying that will make the sick person well. It says the Lord will raise him up. It's the, prayer, it's the faith of those praying that is needed. James mentions absolutely no requirement of faith for the sick person, just that he call upon the elders. James is not teaching either that all illnesses will be healed if people would simply call on the elders or try to make themselves have enough faith or pray with enough conviction. See, we don't want to get this create a a theology just from this one little phrase, we have to realize throughout Scripture that healing, when it does come, is always a gift of God. The God who is sovereign over all circumstances, including sickness and health. Now, to really understand the next phrase, we have to ask why James has placed this phrase here. 
If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So James has just said this prayer of faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Okay, that should be about it, James, right? No. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. This seems to be a forgiving of the sin that has been the cause of the illness. Okay, does that make sense? If there is, if there is sin in, in our life that has caused an illness. If sin is involved, then what James is saying here is this root needs to be dealt with before moving on to the fruit of the root, the sickness itself. We start at the core, we start at the root, the, the possible sin, and then as that sin is forgiven, the illness is healed. This is why when our elders pray for the sick, when we're called on to pray for the sick, or as we will be doing at the end of our celebration today, the elders will be here at the front to pray for those who are sick. We always first ask if there is any sin that needs to be confessed that could be causing the illness. Well, let me stop here and very quickly say a few things about the kind of divine healing that James is talking about here. Okay? So, write fast, okay? These are not in your worship folder. All sickness, in a general way, is caused by sin, correct? We live in a sin-cursed world where there is sin, that, and that sin has caused death, right? That was the warning given to, to Adam and Eve that sin would bring forth death. So, in general, all sickness is caused by sin, but sometimes... Number two, sickness is a direct result of sin in a person's life. But not all sickness is a direct result of sin in a person's life, okay? You have to be careful here. Some sin is caused as a direct result of sin, others are not. Number four, sometimes sickness is a result of even satanic activity. We see this in, in Luke 13. Number five, God can and does heal. He can and he does. I've seen him do it. Many of you have seen him do it. And he uses multiple ways to do that at different times. Sometimes it is through prayer. Sometimes it is through healing. Uh, through healing, through medicine. But I believe the prayers impact the medicine. Okay? Number six, God does heal miraculously. All, all physical healing is miraculous. All spiritual healing is miraculous. It's coming from him. But it is not, number seven, always God's will to heal. Number eight, healing is not something we can demand from God. In Philippians 2, healing is called a mercy. It's called a mercy. Number nine, not all the blessings, not all of the blessings found in salvation and the atonement have been given to us yet. We have to realize that there will be a final, once and for all, healing of all disease, right? Romans 8.32, there will be a final healing of all disease. So healing will come. And number 10, non-healing. We pray for someone, they go to the doctor, everything is done that possibly can be done. Non-healing is not a sign of a lack of faith. If that were true, some would never die. Right? People of great faith, they just keep going because they'd be healed all the time. 
So non-healing is not a sign of lack of faith. Now, I realize this brings up lots of issues, but here's what I can be confident in. We must always pray for healing, and we must be doing more of this in our church. We must be praying more for one another in our sickness. We must be praying more confidently for healing than I believe that we do right now as a church and as individuals. And I know this, there is no reason ever to let pride or shame, if sin is involved, to keep you from seeking prayer. There is never a reason for a Christian to say, I got this. There's also never a reason to say, I, I, just, I, I, I really believe this is maybe caused by sin, but I don't want to put that out there. See, that's letting pride or shame guide us, and that's not what God would have for us. Think of it, the possibility of healing and forgiveness in our lives. This needs to be going on more here at New Life. Then in verse 16, he brings up another topic. See, James is saying, now while we're still on the subject of prayer, healing, and forgiveness, James adds verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Important word here, therefore. Because of this, because of the fact that we are to pray, And because of the fact that God heals, and because of the fact that in the midst of this healing can come amazing forgiveness, therefore, God tells us to pray, because God tells us to pray in all circumstances, even including sickness caused by sin and the promise that sin is being forgiven, here's what needs to be taking place in the church all the time. Therefore, confess, and he begins a new thought. This is what needs to be going on at New Life all the time. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. What happened to the elders? Well, this looks like James is saying, hey, if this is going on all the time in the church and people are praying for each other, that the body is praying for one another and that healing is taking place, you don't need those old guys. This is not going to get to the place where It's having that kind of an impact. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. This is directed to all the readers of James' letter. Indicates that he didn't expect prayer for healing to be limited to the elders. See, that's not what we want to come away with this this morning. I don't want you to come away with, well, isn't that good? The elders pray. No, every believer we see in Scripture is a priest. And there is an amazing value, I believe, in confessing sin out loud and receiving from another believer the assurance that it is forgiven. There's something amazing about that. Many of you have experienced that, where you've confessed something to another believer, and they've prayed over you and reminded you that you are forgiven. And, he says, why should we do this? So you may be healed. See, sometimes confession in the community is needed before healing can take place spiritual or physical, since sin may be the cause of the illness, and often that sin, in one way or the other, is against the community or someone in it. See, there we really get to the nitty-gritty bottom line. 
where the sin that has been committed is against somebody else in the community, and there's a power in going to that person and seeking forgiveness, not just from God, but from them. See, some of you are sitting here this morning, and there's somebody else in this room, or maybe you're in this one because they're at the 11, and there's some friction and stress because of sin that has been committed, words that have been said wrongly, or actions that have been taken incorrectly. God wants us to confess our sins to one another so that we can be healed. See, He wants that too. This has all sorts of ramifications. What happens? It says, the prayer of a righteous man, a just or a godly person, is powerful and effective. Let me remind you that as believers, we have been declared, you have been declared and made righteous, and your prayers are powerful. You see, we get stuck in this, well, I'm not where I should be in that. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've been declared righteous by God. Therefore, your prayers are powerful because, frankly, they're not dependent upon you and me. They're dependent upon God. The answers are never dependent upon us. They are always dependent upon Him. I have seen the truth of this command, and it is a command, let me point out. It's not James saying, yeah, if you think about it, maybe try this. No. I've seen the power of this command time and time again Glorious times when someone has honest, honestly has pushed through shame and fear and doubt and even lies to confess their sin and we've prayed together and Jesus begins a transformation of the Spirit. Forgiveness begins to take over and the love of Jesus for His kids brings waves of peace and healing. I've seen it happen. As a matter of fact, let's do a survey here. How many of you have been the recipient of this kind of prayer, because you have confessed sin to someone, and they have prayed for you, and offered forgiveness, and reminded you of the forgiveness of God, or you have prayed for someone in this situation, and seen this kind of healing, I'm going to ask you to stand up. You have seen this actually happen. You have been a recipient of this prayer, or you have prayed for someone, and seen healing take place, and forgiveness of sin take place. Okay, here, Next year, you can be seated. Next year at this time, I want to preach this same sermon. And I want to see way more of a stand. Because James is saying, this is what's supposed to be going on in the body, everybody. This is what's supposed to be going on in the body. We have about 350 people sitting in here and 40 stood. What is it that God may want to do? I believe he wants to miraculously begin forgiving and healing and change our lives through our prayers, through our work in each other's lives, that we are bold enough to confess sin to one another. Here's what I'm struggling with. See, if, you're, if this isn't happening in your small group, it ought to be. If this isn't happening in your circle of friends, it ought to be. If this isn't constantly happening in our Brothers Keeper prayer time, it ought to be. If this isn't happening with our prayer partners at the end of every celebration, it ought to be. Why? Well, it's a command. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed because your prayers are powerful and effective. These are real-life examples of people who stood here. Examples of His truth. And James tells us an example too. He gives us an example, verse 17, 
Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. James reminds his readers of someone they would know about, an Old Testament prophet named Elijah. If you want to read this story, it's found in 1 Kings 17 and 18. He was just this ordinary man who believed that God answered prayers and that he was a God who would prove his power over sin and who would answer prayer. Well, he prayed it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. For three and a half years, then he prayed it would, and not only did it rain, it produced crops. We could spend an entire sermon on this event, but suffice it to say, your prayers are powerful. They have power. Here's why I think we don't pray sometimes. We don't think they're going to really do any good. I I mean, it's kind of a bottom line, isn't it? Why don't we pray? They don't really do that much good. No, your prayer is powerful. It has impact. God uses it. He uses it to bring himself glory and bring spiritual and even physical healing into people's lives. And then James says that we get to see God work through our care of wanderers, verses 19 and 20. James is bringing his challenging letter for a landing now. And these final two verses are his concluding admonition. You see, it all comes down to this. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We are to be caring for wanderers. We should care for wanderers. As brothers and sisters in our church community, we must be vigilant in spotting anyone who wanders from the truth, anyone straying into sinful patterns, namely, by not living in accord with the word of truth. Chapter 1, verse 18, those who are not living according to the word of truth. When we remember that belief is exhibited in right living, chapter 1, 19 through 27, So when we're lovingly, I believe when we're lovingly involved in each other's lives, we will know how each other's walk in Christ is going. And we're to be caring for those wanderers, watching out for one another. See, we indeed are our brothers and sisters' keeper. And we're to bring those wanderers home. What is our job in the process? Well, it's not judgment. It's not to produce guilt. It isn't gossip not to piously look down our long, bony, spiritual noses on others. And it is not to ignore them because it's all just too awkward to talk about. Don't we avoid it sometimes? Boy, somebody's really struggling, but I hate, oh, I don't want to bring this up. It's, no, 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 it's just awkward. No, these are our family members. And we get to bring wanderers home. These are men and women who have received grace from God just as we have. Ephesians 4 says this about how we are to restore each other into right relationships and why. Ephesians 4 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and end all. Why are we to restore wanderers home? Because we are one. We are one in the Spirit. We've received the same 
grace. You see, we are one, so we must love. We must care. We must be restorers. Only God can save. But Christians are to be the agents of God's forgiveness. Restoration, not condemnation, is the goal. We're not running around looking in corners, seeing who's doing something bad. It's not what we're talking about. James is saying, no, you're living life together, and you know if somebody else is struggling spiritually, if somebody's wandering away from obedience and from the truth, let's bring them home. Let's bring them to a place where God can heal. Love acts through bringing the person as gently as possible to a place of repentance. That turning and moving a new direction. We must bring wanderers home. Why? Because God does save. And He does restore. And we get to be in on that too. You see, we get to see God save and forgive as we bring wanderers home. The wanderer's confession and repentance will be accepted by God who will forgive their sins. And then... The forgiven person continue on the, can continue on the right way. I also believe that they will see the body of Christ, the church, in a new way. The way it was intended to be. Full of people with real faith. See, James brings it all down to this. We need to be watching out for one another's walk. And bringing one another on and encouraging one another and praying for one another and confessing sin to one another and seeing healing in our midst, physical and spiritual healing. This ought to be going on all the time within the church. That's his challenge for us today. You see, we get to see God do amazing things at New Life. I'm going to step out of the passage and just make some pastoral comments as we finish, so stay with me. First thought, which is actually a question, what kind of church do you want to be a part of? What kind of church do you want to be a part of? A praying one? A restoring one? Well, then commit today to be that kind of Christian, and we'll achieve that together. See, new life is only as strong as we are as individuals, as parts of the body. We are all important. See, if if we aren't prayers, then new life will not be a praying church. If you and I aren't restorers who bring wanderers home, then new life won't be either. See, if we're not a place, if we are not individuals who confess our sin to one another, then new life will never be a place where God is working because we're doing that. See, if new life is going to be a place of healing, then we all need to be people who believe that it's actually possible, who believe that our prayers are powerful and that they can change things and that God can use us in other people's lives and restore them to full relationship with Him. Number two, thought number two, it's been said that the greatest sin of the church is prayerlessness. And I think that's true. Now, I know some of you thought that the greatest sin you know, of the church was something you saw on Facebook or something or on a blog somewhere, and usually it's about somebody else. See, the greatest sin within the church is within us. It is prayerlessness. Let's change that here at New Life. 
Let's just change that. Let's make sure that we aren't a prayerless church. I'm not saying we are, but let's make sure we aren't. Let's just pray more, and wherever we are on that spectrum, we'll be moving up, right? Pray on your own every day. I think there are four ways we can do that to make us a praying church. Pray on your own every day. Be spending time with God in your quiet time, desperately seeking Him in prayer. Second, pray together with others in your small groups each week. I mean, I mean really praying. Really praying about real stuff, about stuff, things that are being confessed. And be praying for healing and restoration. Real prayer in our small groups. You're not in one? Get in one. Or you can't experience this type of prayer together. Third, ask for prayer when you need it. That's how we can become a praying church. Ask for prayer. Let's all ask for prayer when we need it. In our small groups, in our Brothers Keeper prayer time each weekend in celebrations, there's a time every week to be able to ask for prayer. And I dare say that there are more of us who need to ask for prayer in our Brothers Keeper prayer time than actually raise their hands. Ask for prayer when you need it by coming to our prayer partners. They're here every weekend for the sole purpose of praying for you and with you. Fourth, this weekend, you can also come and be prayed for by our elders, as I mentioned earlier. They're going to be here at the front to anoint with oil and pray over those who are sick. You can seek that kind of prayer today, too. Of course, as we've seen in this passage today, we will be asking you about any sin that might be causing your illness. So you can do that today. Pray on your own. Pray with others in your small group. Pray with those in BK Prayer Time. Ask for prayer. Ask for prayer in those times. Ask for prayer of our prayer partners. Ask for the prayer of the elders. And then thought number three, let's pray together as a church this week. This week, these next three days, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the church leadership has put out a call for the next three days to be the days of prayer and fasting. As Alan said, there's a sheet in your worship folder this morning with the details of those. There are going to be prayer times each night starting tomorrow night in the prayer chapel, 7 to 8.30. You can fast and pray all of these days, part of them, however God leads you. My question would be, how are you going to participate? What is God challenging you to do? See, the question before us that James finishes out his letter with is are we really going to be people of real faith? Who worship together in a church that has real faith. And he challenges us to pray. Because ultimately it is all about him and not us. Let's pray together. God, I'd ask that in these these minutes that follow as we worship you, as we pray for one another, God, I pray that you would help us to seek out prayer. God, that there'd be people here who maybe have never asked someone else to pray for them, that they would ask for that today. 
of a prayer partner or an elder. I pray that you would do healing, miraculous work in these coming minutes. I pray that as we come together as believers here, God, that we would be praying and praising together. God, I'd ask that you would come, that your spirit would work, and as we obey you, that you would do amazing and great things. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.